Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 45. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a how truth long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. One of our Idaho friends, Robert Bolin, has researched and written quite a number of books about Native American tribes and their leaders. For this podcast, Steve's going to read an excerpt from his book about the Horse Indians, a title which I think encompasses most of the Plains tribal groups, from the Cheyenne to the Comanche to the Blackfoot and the Dakota, and many more. I think there were over 30 tribes um, that were considered American Plains Indians. The story of Texas Ranger Nelson Lee's capture by the Comanche Indians and his eventual escape. Nelson Lee, a famous Texas Ranger, who was not even 20, was captured by Comanche warriors and held captive for three years. His life was spared because of a pocket watch he carried. Lee was born in 1807 in Brownsville, New York, where he worked as a boatsman and raftsman on the St. Lawrence River for several years before sailing around the world. Nelson traveled to Texas, where he joined the Texas Rangers in 1840 under Captain Cameron, a Scot, in the vicinity of the Rio Grande River, serving under President Sam Houston. Houston's order for the Texas Rangers was to search for marauding bands of Indians and Mexican bandits and desperados on the frontier. The Rangers had no special uniform. Lee wore overalls, a flannel shirt, moccasins, and a coonskin cap. He carried two or three revolvers, a rifle, and a bowie knife. Lee slept under the stars beneath a saddle blanket, with a saddle for a pillow and only the howl of a lonesome coyote to put him to sleep. Lee's first fighting engagement happened when his company of Texas Rangers encountered a band of Comanche warriors near Casablanca, not far from the Nueces River. There was an exchange of arrows and bullets when a band of Comanche warriors rode right up to them and got in their faces counting coup amid war hoops, exhibiting their bravery before retreating. The next time Nelson Lee would see Comanche warriors, the Texas Rangers gained sight of 700 Comanche braves on the warpath that had attacked a white settlement on the Avaca River. Four white men were killed and three of their women captured. The army was contacted. Runners reached General Burleson on the Colorado River. The general at the time was waiting for reinforcements, Nelson Lee ended his six months enlistment under Cameroon and re-enlisted for his second campaign under Jack Hayes in San Antonio. Nelson rode a black stallion named Black Prince, his favorite horse. Black Prince proved to be a trusted mount in the service. It was loyal and kept up the pace, traveling at top speed. Lee's unit managed to track down Mexican marauders and Indians on the warpath. He faced all kinds of danger in his years in the service. Nelson rejoined the Texas Rangers on many occasions during his career. He served as a soldier and at times a spy. Lee re-enlisted a third time in 1842. Between 1844 and 1846, Lee worked as a herder of horses and a cattle drover. He bought livestock in central Texas and moved the herds to Louisiana to market. Lee re-enlisted in 1846 and served as a scout for Samuel Walker during the Mexican War. Mexicans were infiltrating America by the thousands, and the Texas Rangers happened to encounter them. At that time, they were outnumbered and beat a hasty retreat. The Texas Rangers served during the Mexican War between the United States and Mexico, 1846-48. Victory meant American acquisition of Arizona, California, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, and Texas. In 1848-1855, Lee was working with livestock. 
It was during this time that a man named Akins made Lee a proposition of driving a large herd of horses to market into California. Lee and Akins went to New Orleans to buy supplies. It was there that Lee espied a fine silver pocket watch that would play a major role in his destiny. It had a good loud alarm and would come in handy. They rode to Brownsville, Texas, where they hired a crew of 19 men. The next project was to build up a herd. Lee accomplished that by buying and catching horses. At one point, the crew embarked. Lee gathered horses as they traveled. They passed by many herds of wild horses. Sometimes they captured a few of them. The horse herders moved through canyons, gullies, prairies, and valleys. At times, they drove the herd along arroyos or pathway along a dry stream bed. The Mustangers lived in the saddle and rode for hundreds of miles. Finally, they reached a beautiful valley with plenty of grass and running water for the herd. Lee decided to stay there for a few weeks to let the pregnant mares fall. Unknown to Lee was the danger that, in the foothills of the mountains above them, Comanche spies were watching their every move. In the camp, they began to unwind, wrestling, and became rambunctious, horsing around as the cooks prepared supper. After dinner, they sang songs and sat around the campfire telling stories. Lee took the first watch and rode Black Prince out to check the horse herd. All was calm at midnight, and he was relieved. He rolled his coat up for a pillow and pulled his horse blanket over him. A coyote howled as Nelson crawled into the sack. He had not slept long when all hell broke loose. An Indian war cry, followed by another, woke the entire camp. There were Comanche Indians everywhere. He sprang to his feet and went for his gun when an Indian lasso circled his head. He was yanked off his feet. The warrior hogtied him. Except for Aikens, Lee, Martin, and Stewart, the whole camp was massacred. They were captured as slaves, stripped of their clothing, and given deerskin shirts and leggings. A brave was going through Lee's things when he discovered the watch. The alarm went off at exactly 3.30, the time they usually rose. The Indian was astounded. Lee was tagged as a medicine man. The Indians took everything. The horses, saddles, bridles, guns, ammo, tents, and bedding. They even stripped off the clothing, boots, and any jewelry from the dead bodies. Pots, pans, utensils, canteens, all pillage were tied onto mules. The Comanche warriors finished by scalping the dead. The captives were taken down to view the dead. At this point, the prisoners were mounted onto mules and tied hand and foot. At times, they lost balance and started to fall over, to be caught and lifted back into position by the Indians. They traveled most of the day and reached their camp in the early evening. In front of the lodge were two logs with kindling in between. Two horses were shot and butchered. Strips of horse flesh were perforated by four-foot saplings and held over the fire. Corn was ground in mortar and pestles into a mash. The Comanche sat in a circle for the evening meal, which was served in dishes made of tree bark. The Indians ate, holding the meat in the left hand and scooped the corn up in the right hand into the mouth. The braves took delight in flicking hot pieces of meat onto the skin of the captives in the center, which seared their flesh. At the village, all four men were bound and staked down to the ground. Lee did not sleep all night. At dawn, he was taken to the center of the village. The Comanche crowded together, trying to see the white man. The Indian with the watch gave it to the chief of the village. The chief handed the watch to his youngest wife, Moko, who gave Lee his pocket watch. Lee held it up to the sun god and then listened to it, pretending it was telepathy from the gods. He set the watch, wound it, and then waited, acting as if he were a shaman with much magic. The alarm went off. The Indians stood in awe of him. They motioned for him to do it again, but he shook his head. No, he had been spared. The chief took Lee to be his personal slave. That night, Nelson slept in the chief's tent, though bound and staked down. Lee awoke the next day and watched the chief of the Comanche Indian band. Big Wolf was middle-aged and stood six feet tall. He had four younger wives. The youngest was mostly comely, and he favored her. The chief had four children with them, 
who lived with their mothers in separate cubicles, adjoined to his lodge. He summoned the wife he chose to sleep with. Nelson Lee was now the slave of Chief Big Wolf of the Comanche Band. He and the chief entered into a blood pact. Nelson basically signed an agreement to serve Big Wolf all of his life. Lee filled the chief's buffalo horn with water from the watershed when he thirsted. He pounded corn in the mortar and pestle for his meals. Lee spread his buffalo skin for his rest and lit the chief's pipe for a smoke. He waited on Big Wolf, hand and foot. Lee was allowed the freedom to stroll within the village. He could sleep without fetters and could carry a knife. He had earned the chief's trust and was named Kimakako, the good white man. The Comanche male was a slovenly person who slept a lot and did not work in camp. The women did all of the work. His only work was to hunt and go on the war trail. His scalps were his power and hung from his lodge. He did not bathe regularly and tended to be smelly and dirty. If the hunter shot a buffalo or killed a mustang for food, he rode into the village to inform his wife where it was. Her role was to ride out and find it, cut the flesh into strips and bring it to camp. If the husband shot a deer, he carried it across his saddle to his wife to dress and cook. Lee was taken from the chief's teepee to the center of the village, where Aikens, Martin, and Stewart were bound to stakes. Lee was bound in the same manner. Comanche warriors did a mock scalp dance around the captives, shaking knives and tomahawks in their faces. They circled around them, giving out shrieks of war cries. They circled in a frenzy dance. The braves acted out scalping the men for a good two hours. Then, oddly enough, the men were freed. They were given Indian garb to wear and returned to camp. Aikens and Lee were able to talk in his tent. The Indians came and took Aikens from the tent, and Lee surmised that Aiken was taken as a slave to another village. But he never saw him again. The next day, Lee was given some menial chores. That evening, Lee was again taken to the village center, where Martin and Stuart were bound to stakes in the ground and were naked. The Comanche warriors danced around them, giving out war hoops. Like the night before, they circled them and shook knives and tomahawks in their faces. This went on for some time, as they mutilated them with their knives. The eerie rhythmic tom-tom beat went on and on, and then stopped. A sharp war cry followed. Martin and Stuart screamed in pain as the devils took their scalps. They bled from their heads and all of the wounds. The blood pooled on the ground around them. The horrendous chanting and dancing continued again. The frenzied Indians belted out war cries and slashed the poor wretches. Martin screamed in pain, Oh, Jesus, spare me from this agonizing pain. The drumbeat reached a fevered pitch and stopped. The Comanche raised their tomahawks and took their lives. Although he had lost his close comrades, Lee's life was spared, apparently because of the pocket watch. A short time later, the Indian women of the village pulled down the teepees and rolled them up. The buffalo skins and clothing were packed on travois. All of the work was done by the women. They loaded the mules and readied for the trip. After three days' travel, they reached their destination some 100 miles away. It was a small Comanche encampment, an extension of Big Wolf's tribe called Manasaw. The Indian women hurried to put up the tents. The Comanche raised some beans, corn, and tobacco. Lee observed the celebration of the Green Corn Dance. Some 600 Indians attended the festival. Every family had a large pile of green corn beside a fire. The Indians gathered in a huge circle. The celebration began and the Indians danced and chanted. A crude drum consisting of a wooden hoop with a buffalo skin stretched over it and tied in the back made the tom-tom instrument. It was played with a drumstick made from a buffalo bone. Chief Big Wolf sold his slave Nelson Lee to another Comanche, Chief Spotted Leopard. Lee was later bartered away again for a pile of animal skins to Chief Rolling Thunder. Living in various villages, Lee saw remnants of a cavalry unit. On occasion, he had caught sight of, of other white captives. When the women were stripped down to walk to the river for their daily baths, Lee saw fair-skinned women, one with curly red hair. 
In another village, he met some Mormon women slaves that spoke English and conversed with them. Nelson wrote that the Comanche Indians wore war paint every day, including both sexes. War paint, or body paint, came from clay, minerals, and plants. The paint he wore was clay. On one occasion, when traveling to another village, the Comanche happened onto a black bear. One horseman lassoed the bear's head, while another roped his back leg. Comanche horses backed up, stretching the bear as one warrior cut its throat. They cooked the bear for supper. Lee learned the Comanche language. He observed many festivals, the Comanche war dance, green corn dance, pipe dance, roast dog dance, and scalp dance. He observed Indian wars and was treated like a Comanche for a three-year period. He was a slave for chiefs and waited on them hand and foot to stay alive. His magic pocket watch helped save him. Lee had waited the whole time of his capture for the right opportunity to escape. He tried on a couple of occasions to ease out of camp, but got caught. Finally, on a journey with Chief Rolling Thunder, Lee got his chance. The chief had grown quite thirsty on their trip. Discovering a running spring, the chief lay prostrate on the ground to get a drink. Lee seized upon the opportunity and grabbed the chief's tomahawk and bludgeoned him in the head. He grabbed the chief's rifle, mounted his horse, and retreated at a fast gallop. Lee traveled in the direction that they had just come. He rode hard to escape on the chief's horse with a mule tied behind. He followed an old animal trail. Nelson traveled over nearly impossible terrain, and as the sun went down, he reached a small clearing surrounded by trees and slept. Nelson knew that when the chief's body was found, the Comanche would begin to search for him. He killed a mule and butchered it for food. Lee cut the meat into strips and built a small fire and roasted the meat. He made a makeshift canteen from the bladder of the mule and hardened it over the fire and filled it with water, tying it off with a strand of buffalo skin. Lee knew that the animals had caught the scent of the dead mule. He learned not to sleep where he had killed an animal. Lee also did not forget the ways of the Comanche. He built up the fire and slept a troubled sleep. When Nelson arose, he hadn't slept much. Lee traveled only about 10 miles in the heavy brush and mountainous terrain that day before nightfall was upon him. He had the mule meat and canteen, so he again ate and slept. Nelson arose at the break of dawn the next day, weary and sore, and rode until he came near a green valley. He had ridden about 30 miles. It was beautiful and calm, with a running stream. He watered his horse, bedded down, and fell asleep around midnight. Putting as many miles between the dead Comanche chief and himself as he could, he rode for days and wandered in the mountains before discovering a clear stream with deer in the vicinity. Nelson fired his rifle for the first time, killing a plump doe. He kindled a fire and cooked the venison. He ate the steaks, jerked the venison, and rode on. After a week, he looked down from a mountain and espied about 300 Indian lodges. He turned and retraced his route to escape before being caught. On the 20th day, Nelson again saw Indians. They were on the move, single file, probably going to visit another tribe. He watched until the last brave disappeared from view before daring to cross the valley. Lee made good use of his rifle, killing enough deer to sustain himself and found a clearing in the mountain pass with a spring at the base of a slope. Lee's horse was spent with broken hooves. His moccasins were worn up. He tied his hair back to keep it out of his face. Nelson shot more deer and skinned them with his knife. He made a roughshod deerskin shirt and leggings and a new pair of moccasins, hair inside, for comfort. With plenty of venison... Lee mounted his horse and continued on. He grew weaker by the day. Lee stopped whenever he found water, but was very tired and suffered with pain. He prayed to God sometimes that when he fell asleep, he would never wake up, but he continued on in agony. On the 56th day of his departure, Lee came upon a rolling prairie. The horse grew more and more lame, at times, he stopped to let him lie down and just rest. 
Finally, the horse could only be led. Lee removed the saddle and bridle and slapped a horse on the rump to set it free. Nelson took his buffalo skin and made a knapsack, tying it with the bridle reins. He picked up his rifle and canteen and hiked away, alone. Lee became depressed and started to lose his mind. He doubted himself and had no horse. Lost and confused, he trudged along. He was sick at heart and bruised in the middle of nowhere. After a few days of travel, he came upon a fountain pouring out of a rock. He refreshed himself and stayed the night. When he awoke, he heard a rifle crack and decided Indians must be near. Jumping to his feet, he awaited the consequences. To his amazement, he heard singing and saw a Mexican caballero with a wide-brimmed hat riding slowly toward him with a deer across his saddle. He spoke to Lee in broken English. How are you, senor? Not knowing his character, the ranger spoke to him in Spanish and informed him he was in dire straits and in need of help. The Comanchero asked him how he had come to be there. Lee explained that he had been lost in the mountains and was trying to reach civilization. The Comanchero said that he had been on a trading expedition to the Apache Indians and was returning, and that his companions were nearby. The Mexican went on to say that they were from San Fernandez, below Eagle Pass, near the Rio Grande. The trader welcomed him to join them in camp. Concerned for Lee's well-being, he dismounted and led the horse as Lee rode. The name of the Good Samaritan was Joseph de Silva. The Comancheros were astonished to see the wild man, but welcomed him into their camp. The Comancheros had eight pack mules laden with buffalo robes and furs from the Apache village. They rearranged the mule's loads to allow Lee to ride one. He was treated with great kindness. The Mexican traders had found Ranger Lee wandering in the wilderness. If it had not been for them happening along, he could have perished in the desert. Lee accompanied Joseph de Silva and party all the way to Matamoros, a seaport in northeastern Mexico, on the Rio Grande, where he sailed for New York. In New York, Nelson Lee wrote his memoirs, Three Years Among the Comanches. Continuing our reading from Winds of Wyoming, we're still in Chapter 11. Kate watched Manuel dig a hole beneath a lilac bush at the back of the blue jay. It wasn't long before he straightened. I think that's deep enough. Still holding the shovel, he scraped his boots on the edge of her stoop and stepped into the cabin to retrieve the snake. Rain drizzled down Kate's back, but she didn't mind. Manuel was dealing with the snake, and the storm provided a modicum of privacy. She wasn't anxious to explain their actions to anyone. Manuel returned with the snake balanced on the shovel blade. She backed away, despite the fact he'd already told her the reptile was dead. He laughed at her. Bull snakes are good snakes, good for eating mice and rats, and rattlesnakes, too. She shuddered. You'll never convince me there's such a thing as a good snake. He slid the reptile into the hole, covered it with the damp dirt, and tapped the shovel against a rock to knock off the mud clump. There you go, Kate. No more bull snake. She patted his arm. Thank you, Manuel. I owe you. Big time. He shouldered the shovel and shook his head. Nah, you don't owe me nada. Please don't tell anybody. I'm sure the snake was just a silly prank, but it could upset guests if they hear about it. Seems like a mean joke to me, he wiped water from his forehead. She shrugged. Well, maybe someone has a sixth sense of humor. After he left to return to his work, Kate found disinfectant in the housekeeping supplies and scoured the bathroom from floor to ceiling. The third time she scrubbed the sink, she admitted to herself it probably wasn't necessary. But it made her feel better. The rain stopped just before she drove down the mountain. Moisture-fringed clouds scuttled ahead of her car. 
leaving behind green hills and a double rainbow to guide her to town. The fresh smell of the rain-cleansed countryside and the side of the creek dancing alongside the highway soon washed the events of the morning from her mind. She pulled into the bank parking lot, thinking she'd arrived in the little community less than a week ago, yet it felt much longer. She opened the envelope and took out the paycheck. Even before Coach handed it to her, all her needs had been met. Without her stealing from the Highway Haven Church's money, She stared at the clean blue sky. Thank you, Jesus, for providing all my needs and for protecting me from myself. Forgive me for today and help me stay away from that cash drawer. She opened the door. And please don't let Ramsey see me here. The bank's two friendly employees welcomed her to Copperville and set up an account for her. When she finished at the bank, she drove to the gas station to fill the Honda's tank. Afterward, she stopped at the hardware grocery store to purchase gloves, Ritz crackers, and a book. She wandered the aisles, thinking she'd also buy a few items for her refrigerator, just in case she missed another meal or wanted a snack. She couldn't bring herself to carry leftovers from the dining room back to her cabin. Prison rules against removing anything from the mess hall, even a sugar packet or a napkin, were forever branded in her brain. The tiny store's variety amazed her, but she was confused by the arrangement of the products. Flasks of motor oil flanked toilet paper rolls. Coffee canisters lined the shelf above canned peaches. Finding what she needed could be a challenge. She rounded an end cap display and found herself almost nose to nose with Tara Hughes. Tara looked her up and down. Well, well, well. If it isn't Miss Pennsylvania... Her presence, though slight, seemed to fill the aisle. Hi, Tara. I thought that was your rattletrap car parked out front. Kate folded her arms. This was evidently not her day to win points with either Cyrus or Tara. A pudgy woman pushing a cart filled with bread loaves and egg cartons turned into the aisle. Kate glanced at her. Of all people to see her in another confrontation the waitress from Grandma's Café. The woman looked at her, from her to Tara, and back again, all the while twiddling an earring with her finger. Finally, she moved on. Tara stepped closer. Her perfume was as strong and noxious as Ramsay's aftershave. Kate sneezed and backed into the cereal shelf. Tara's coral-tinted lips thinned into a weak smile. This is a good opportunity for us to understand each other better, she said. Kate grabbed a box of Raisin Bran. What are you talking about? She fanned the air with the box. Well, let's just put it this way. Tara sighed and dropped her shoulders as if exasperated to have to explain the obvious. Michael Duncan is a friendly sort of guy and you're the pathetic type of employee he'll pity. But, she pointed a long orange fingernail at Kate's chest, you need to remember he's engaged. We're engaged. And everything will be all right. All right? What does that mean? Tara hooted. As they say, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I'm good at reacting. I'll be even better at it when I become your boss. Kate sucked in a quick breath. Boss? Here's how it is with Michael. You'll flirt with him. I'm sure you've already tried. He might appear to flirt back. But he's not flirting on his part. He just feels sorry for you. I mean, look at you. The old barn could use a couple thick coats of heavy-duty paint. Kate dug her fingernails into the box. I get your drift, Hughes. You're engaged. You're the jealous type. But I don't know why you're so concerned about me. Rickety old barn that I am. She sneezed. Nothing is happening between me and Mike, so get off your high horse. Clutching the box with both hands to keep from shoving Tara into the dog food cans, Kate wheeled, marched to the cash register, paid for the cereal, and hurried to her car. She steered the Honda onto the highway, fighting the impulse to stomp the gas pedal. 
thanks to Tara Hughes, she'd purchased Raisin Bran cereal, which she detested, and hadn't gotten the thing she wanted. God help the Whispering Pines when Mike Duncan married the arrogant woman. After dinner, Kate stopped on the veranda to listen to the music she'd heard from inside the dining hall. Mike sat at the far end with a horse wrangler named Dylan. Both men were strumming guitars. Other men, including Clint, lolled about the porch, some sitting, some leaning against the railing. Have a seat, Kate. Clint got up from a nearby rocking chair and moved to a bench. Thank you. That's very kind of you. The other smiled and nodded as she joined the group. Clint indicated the circle of men. These guys are putting together songs to sing around our campfire with the guests. Something new Mrs. D wants to add this year. You know any campfire songs? Kate laughed. We didn't have many campfires in Pittsburgh, unless you count the time my brother burned a pile of comic books in the backyard. And the only song I can think of is Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Dylan turned to Mike. What do you think? It's short and easy. Mike chuckled. So easy, it only has two chords. But our guests probably are expecting to hear cowboy songs. Clint lifted a finger. How about Home on the Range? Mike gave him a thumbs up. That's what our guests want to hear. Songs about bison. Dylan rolled his eyes. In your dreams. But he began to strum and the men sang along. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam where the deer and the antelope play. Kate rocked her chair to the beat of the music and watched the pond below the dining hall mirror the sunset, which had begun to fill the evening sky with a kaleidoscope of color. She'd had a crazy day, but this was a perfect, peaceful way to end it. She glanced from face to fading face as the clouds dimmed into reds and purples. A few short months ago, She wouldn't have dared to dream she'd soon be sitting on a Wyoming mountainside, listening to cowboys sing, and breathing air that smelled so sweet she could almost taste it. As the sky darkened, crickets and pond frogs joined the concert. Finally, Mike turned to Dylan. I don't know about you, but my fingers are sore. This is the most I've played the guitar in a long time. I know what you mean, Dylan rubbed his fingertips together. Let's call it a night and figure our guests won't expect us to be professionals. I hope not, Mike put his guitar down, or they'll be disappointed. Kate stood. Thank you for the concert. You're welcome. Mike smiled and winked, making her heart skip. But Kate bit her lip and willed her heartbeat to slow down. Tara had made it clear this afternoon that she and Mike were engaged Dylan turned his cowboy hat upside down. Drop your tips here, folks. Just bills. Coins not accepted. Clint took Kate's arm. Can I walk you to your cabin? She smiled. Maybe you can keep me from falling on my nose again. And, she thought, help me forget about Mike. Here's chapter six of Treasure Island. The Captain's Papers. We rode hard all the way till we drew up before Dr. Livesey's door. The house was all dark to the front. Mr. Dance told me to jump down and knock, and Dogger gave me a stirrup to descend by. The door was opened almost at once by the maid. Is Dr. Livesey in? I asked. No, she said. He had come home in the afternoon but had gone up to the hall to dine and pass the evening with the squire. So there we go, boys, said Mr. Dance. This time, as the distance was short, I did not mount, but ran with dogger stirrup leather to the gates, to the lodge gates, and up the long, leafless, moonlit avenue to where the white line of the hall buildings looked on either hand on great old gardens. Here Mr. Dance dismounted, and taking me along with him, was admitted at a word into the house. The servant led us down a matted passage and showed us at the end into a great library. All lined with bookcases and busts upon the top of them, where the squire and Dr. Livesey sat, pipe in hand, on either side of a bright fire. 
I had never seen the squire so near at hand. He was a tall man, over six feet high and broad in proportion, and he had a bluff, rough and ready face, all roughened and reddened and lined in his long travels. His eyebrows were very black and moved readily, and this gave him a look of some temper, not bad, you would say, but quick and high. Come in, Mr. Dance, says he, very stately and condescending. Good evening, Dance, says the doctor with a nod, and good evening to you, friend Jim. What good wind brings you here? The supervisor stood up straight and stiff and told his story like a lesson. And you should have seen how the two gentlemen leaned forward and looked at each other and forgot to smoke in their surprise and interest. When they heard how my mother went back to the inn, Dr. Livesey fairly slapped his thigh, and the squire cried, Bravo! and broke his long pipe against the grate. Long before it was done, Mr. Trelawney, that, you will remember, was the squire's name, had got up from his seat and was striding about the room. And the doctor, as if to hear the better, had taken off his powdered wig and sat there looking very strange indeed with his own close-cropped black pole. At last, Mr. Dance finished the story. Mr. Dance, said the squire, you are a very noble fellow. And as for writing down that black, atrocious miscreant, I regard it as an act of virtue, sir, like stamping on a cockroach. This lad, Hawkins, is a trump, I perceive. Hawkins, will you ring that bell? Mr. Dance must have some ale. And so, Jim, said the doctor, you have the thing that they were after, have you? Here it is, sir, said I, and gave him the oilskin packet. The doctor looked it all over as if his fingers were itching to open it. But instead of doing that, he put it quietly in the pocket of his coat. Squire, said he, when Dance has had his ale, he must, of course, be off on His Majesty's service. But I mean to keep Jim Hawkins here to sleep at my house. And with your permission, I propose we should have up the cold pie and let him sup. As you will, Levisy, said the squire. Hawkins has earned better than cold pie. So a big pigeon pie was brought in and put on a side table, and I made a hearty supper, for I was as hungry as a hawk while Mr. Dance was further complimented and at last dismissed. And now, squire, said the doctor. And now, Livesey, said the squire in the same breath. One at a time, one at a time, laughed Dr. Livesey. You have heard of this flint, I suppose? Heard of him, cried the squire. Heard of him, you say? He was the bloodthirstiest buccaneer that sailed. Blackbeard was a child to flint. The Spaniards were so prodigiously afraid of him that I tell you, sir, I was sometimes proud he was an Englishman. I've seen his topsails with these eyes off Trinidad, and the cowardly son of a rum puncheon that I sailed with put back, put back, sir, into Port of Spain. Well, I've heard of him myself in England, said the doctor. But the point is, had he money? Money, cried the squire. Have you heard the story? What were these villains after but money? What do they care for but money? For what would they risk their rascal carcasses but money? That we shall soon know, replied the doctor. But you are so confoundedly hot-headed and exclamatory that I cannot get a word in. What I want to know is this. Supposing that I have here in my pocket some clue to where Flint buried his treasure, will that treasure amount to much? Amount, sir, cried the squire. It will amount to this. If we have the clue you talk about, I fit out a ship in Bristol dock and take you and Hawkins here along, and I'll have that treasure if I search a year. Very well, said the doctor. Now then, if Jim is agreeable, we'll open the packet. And he laid it before him on the table. The bundle was sewn together, and the doctor had to get out his instrument case and cut the stitches with his medical scissors. It contained two things, a book and a sealed paper. First of all, we'll try the book, observed the doctor. The squire and I were both peering over his shoulder as he opened it, for Dr. Livesey had kindly motioned me to come round from the side table where I had been eating, to enjoy the sport of the search. 
On the first page, there were only some scraps of writing, such as a man with a pen in his hand might make for idleness or practice. One was the same as the tattoo mark, Billy Bones, his fancy. Then there was Mr. W. Bones, mate. No more rum. Off Palm Key, he got it. And some other snatches, mostly single words and unintelligible. I could not help wondering who it was that had got it and what it was that he got. A knife in his back, as likely as not. Not much instruction there, said Dr. Livesey as he passed on. The next ten or twelve pages were filled with a curious series of entries. There was a date at one end of the line, and at the other a sum of money, as in common account books. But instead of explanatory writing, only a varying number of crosses between the two. On the 12th of June, 1745, for instance, a sum of 70 pounds had plainly become due to someone, and there was nothing but six crosses to explain the cause. In a few cases, to be sure, the name of a place would be added as Off Caracas, or a mere entry of latitude and longitude as 62 degrees, 17 minutes, 20 seconds. 19 degrees, 2 minutes, 40 seconds. The record lasted over nearly 20 years, the amount of the separate entries growing larger as time went on, and at the end a grand total had been made out after five or six wrong additions, and these words appended, Bones, his pile. I can't make head or tail of this, said Dr. Livesey. The thing is as clear as noonday, cried the squire. This is the black-hearted hound's account book. These crosses stand for the names of ships or towns that they sank or plundered. The sums are the scoundrel's share. And where he feared an ambiguity, you see, he added something clearer. Off Caracas. Now, you see, here was some unhappy vessel boarded off that coast. God help the poor souls that manned her, Coral, long ago. Right, said the doctor. See what it is to be a traveler. Right, and the amounts increase, you see, as he rose in rank. There was little else in the volume but a few bearings of places noted in the blank leaves toward the end and a table for reducing French, English, and Spanish monies to a common value. Thrifty man, cried the doctor. He wasn't the one to be cheated. And now, said the squire, for the other. The paper had been sealed in several places with a thimble by way of seal. The very thimble, perhaps, that I had found in the captain's pocket. The doctor opened the seals with great care, and there fell out the map of an island with latitude and longitude, uh, soundings, names of hills and bays and inlets, and every particular that would be needed to bring a ship to a safe anchorage upon its shores. It was about nine miles long and five across, shaped, you might say, like a fat dragon standing up, and had two fine landlocked harbors and a hill in the center part marked the Spyglass. There were several additions of a later date, but above all, three crosses of red ink, two on the north part of the island, one in the southwest, and beside this last, in the same red ink, and in a small, neat hand very different from the captain's tottery characters, these words, bulk of treasure here. Over on the back, the same hand had written this further information. Tall tree, spyglass shoulder, bearing a point to the north of north-northeast, skeleton island, east-southeast, and by east, ten feet. The bar of silver is in the north cache. You can find it by the trend of the east hummock. Ten fathoms south of the black crag with a face on it. The arms are easy found in the sand hill, north point of north inlet cape, bearing east and a quarter north. J.F. That was all, but brief as it was, and to me incomprehensible, it filled the squire and Dr. Livesey with delight. Livesey, said the squire, you will give up this wretched practice at once. Tomorrow I start for Bristol. In three weeks' time, three weeks, two weeks, ten days, we'll have the best ship, sir, and the choicest crew in England. 
Hawkins shall come as cabin boy. You'll make a famous cabin boy, Hawkins. You, Livesey, are ship's doctor. I am admiral. We'll take Redruth, Joyce, and Hunter. We'll have favorable winds, a quick passage, and not the least difficulty in finding the spot, and money to eat, to roll in, to play duck and drake with ever after. Trelawney, said the doctor, I'll go with you, and I'll go bail for it. So will Jim, and be a credit to the undertaking. There's only one man I'm afraid of. And who's that? cried the squire. Name the dog, sir. You, replied the doctor, for you cannot hold your tongue. We are not the only men who know of this paper. These fellows who attacked the inn tonight, bold, desperate blades for sure, and the rest who stayed aboard that lugger, and more, I dare say, not far off, are one and all, through thick and thin, bound that they'll get that money. We must none of us go alone till we get to sea. Jim and I shall stick together in the meanwhile. You'll take Joyce and Hunter when you ride to Bristol, and from first to last, not one of us must breathe a word of what we've found. Livesey returned the squire. You are always in the right of it. I'll be as silent as the grave. Another Idaho author friend of ours, Erlene Klein, has written a, a little devotional book called, titled, New Every Morning, 52 Devotions for Caregivers. Uh, she had, has had quite a bit of experience along that line, so I'm going to read uh, two of her uh, short little thoughts here. The first one is titled, Listen to Wise Counsel. Proverbs 24, 6, For by wise counsel you will make war, and in multitude of counselors there is safety. I was determined not to put Dan in a nursing home. He was sent to one for rehab after his second knee replacement surgery, and I could hardly stand to see him there. We celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary in July, and all the children were home. We had a glorious weekend together, but Dan really began to go downhill after that. He was getting me up four and five times a night, and there would be puddles of urine on the bathroom floor. I now had to help him dress and shower. Near Thanksgiving, Dan developed a urinary tract infection, and we had to take him to the emergency room. He was in the hospital for five days. When it came time to move him, he was no longer mobile. I knew I couldn't handle him at home. My son told me, Mom, it's time. I ended up putting him back in the same nursing home where he had completed his rehab. That was the hardest thing I had ever done. I cried all the way home. Things don't turn out as hoped and planned, and sometimes big decisions make themselves. And Erleem provides an action step. Seek God's face and counsel and listen to those around you. What looks so terrible may prove to be a great blessing. And this one's titled, Learn to Laugh. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Proverbs 17.22 Dan and I would share cooking breakfast together. On pancake day, I would cook my pancake and put my egg on to cook in the little skillet, and Dan's pancake in the large skillet. Dan would turn my egg in his pancake. This particular morning, when it came time to turn my egg, Dan took the skillet and flipped my egg over onto the burner. I jumped up and began to clean the burner. Then when it came time to turn his pancake, he took the skillet and again flipped the food onto the burner. I cried out, Are you using your brain? Immediately I was sorry and proceeded to clean up the second burner. Needless to say, Dan had something else for breakfast, and that ended his helping me in the kitchen. When I got to the support group and told the story of our Alzheimer's breakfast, we laughed until tears flowed. It may not have been funny at the time, but the more I told the story, the funnier it got. I kept a journal and wrote everything down in those Alzheimer's years so I wouldn't forget it. Sometimes 
those memories and moments become cause for laughter. Action step. Don't let yourself get too upset about the strange things that your loved one does. Choose to laugh instead. And, well, that's what I do with Steve, too. <laughs> so we can, we can uh, apply these caregiver principles to all areas of life. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> We're going to go out with a joke about Marvin. He was in the hospital on his deathbed, so the family called his preacher to be with him. As the preacher stood by the bed, Marvin's condition seemed to get worse. And Marvin motioned for someone to quickly pass him a pen and paper, and the preacher did. But before he had a chance to read the note, Marvin died. The preacher, feeling now that now wasn't the right time to read it, put the note in his jacket pocket. It was at the funeral while speaking that the preacher reached into his pocket and said, And you know what? I suddenly remember that right before Marvin died, he handed me a note. And knowing Marvin, I'm sure it was something inspiring that we can all gain from. With that introduction, the preacher opened it and read, Hey, you're standing on my oxygen tube. (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. That's not really funny. (laughs) Well, that's going to close us out. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.